On the 9th of September 2020, the Bar of Ireland was delighted to assist the Oireachtas Special Committee on COVID-19 Response in its examination of the legislative framework underpinning the state's response to the pandemic. TDs looked at the legislation and regulations introduced by the state in response to COVID-19 since March and looked at the responses to the pandemic in the UK and other jurisdictions. The committee also looked at the human rights and civil liberty considerations surrounding that response. The committee held three sessions and included the President of the Venice Commission of the Council of Europe, Gabriel Bucciccio, and retired Justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, Lord Jonathan Sumption. Maura McNally, Chair of the Bar, was joined by Joseph O'Sullivan, Chair of the Bar's Human Rights Committee, and emphasised the need for access to justice during these times, and the need for physical hearings alongside the use of technology. Firstly, I'd like to thank you for the invitation to attend here. And on behalf of the Bar of Ireland, we'd like to address certain issues which we feel are very pertinent to what has arisen out of COVID-19. So in respect of the context of the legislative response, the members of your committee are well aware of the various responses that they have been required to undertake, both in government and as members of the Oireachtas in addressing the pandemic which is an emergency in every uh, understanding of that word, both legislative, legislative and colloquially. The, the need to address the emergency resulted in emergency legislation being required, and that emergency legislation was enacted by these uh, the houses of the Oireachtas, both through pre-existing acts and also through statutory instruments and regulations. Now, the emergency and legislative process, the regulations that were passed and the acts that were passed all had to take into consideration fundamental rights of the citizen. So they had to take into consideration the Irish Constitution and also had to be aware of the European Convention on Human Rights. So all statutes and all statutory instruments and regulations had to work within those two parameters. And ministers in enacting uh, statutory instruments and in signing them into operation had to be aware that those regulations had to put into play the principles and processes of the particular act under which that SI, the regulation or statutory instrument, was coming into being. So necessary measures arose and those necessary measures had to take into consideration what we would perceive as the four parameters of ensuring the protection of those fundamental rights of our citizens and ensuring that there was recognition of the European Convention of Human Rights and our Constitution. So firstly, any act or any statutory instrument or regulation must be rationally connected to the objective for which that restriction was introduced. Secondly, it must not be arbitrary it must not be unfair, and by that I mean that it must be based on rational considerations. Thirdly, it must not impair the rights of individuals, or where it does, it must do so in the most limited method or manner possible. And fourthly, it must be proportional, and that is a major consider consideration, the proportionality. And that word, we say, must be read in conjunction with the word emergency. So 
there are also important checks in place on how acts are brought into being and how statutory instruments and regulations are brought into being. Under statutes themselves and under statutory instruments, these are discussed at the Oireachtas. Also the Oireachtas, for example, under the Health Act, uh, Section 5, has the means and method of bringing regulations back before uh, the various members. There is also external checks, and those external checks arise in circumstances where individuals challenge the constitutionality of either the act itself, or they challenge the constitutionality of the regulation slash statutory instrument. To do that, they have to prove their locus standi. They have to show to the courts, which is the external body ensuring the protection of the fundamental rights, they have to show to that court that they have grounds, that they have a reason. And even during the commencement of the emergency, the courts addressed uh, that question of whether or not fundamental rights were being breached, where we had a case uh, taken in respect of an application for leave to judicial review, and that was the case taken by uh, John Waters and Gemma Doherty. And even though we were at the commencement of the lockdown, the courts came into being, exercised its rights, heard that case, and addressed whether or not uh, there was constitutionality or grounds in respect of challenging the constitutionality of those regulations. So as I say, there are checks and bounds. Ministers are aware that when they introduce a statutory instrument or a regulation, that they do so to enforce the act and they must do so within the parameters of ensuring the processes, the principles and purpose of that act are addressed. And again, that statutory instrument itself must be in compliance and must be in recognition of the fundamental rights. But as I say, there has to be proportionality in respect of that. So it's clearly important that firstly, there are constitutional rights and procedures which must be protected and observed. And one of those includes parliamentary democracy, one of the ground stones, if not the cornerstone upon which uh, our Irish nation operates. Secondly, we have the executive. Uh, and thirdly, we have those external means of ensuring that persons do not become uh, operating within unfettered powers. In other words, they have to operate within the law. Law must be maintained during any emergency, and to this end, it ensures the rule of law, and it ensures that fundamental rights of individuals are recognized and protected, both by the internal regulation by the Oireachtas and by the external regulation by the courts. Now, on that subject, access to the courts, that's a matter of grave public importance and also a matter of public interest. Um, as we see it, not only do you have civil law, but you also have the criminal law. And in order to ensure that those external checks and bounds are exercised and exercised appropriately, there has to be sufficient funding for all of that. And by that I mean, for example, in respect of the backlog that has built up in criminal courts, the courts are now trying to get back and running within the parameters of the recognized regulations, statutory instruments and acts, but they are trying to, to run in a safe fashion. But because we had a lockdown, it has resulted in a backlog of cases. Thank you very much, Ms. McNally. I'd ask you to conclude, if you can, please. Terribly sorry, I'm noted for speaking too much, so my apologies. So in, in, in the short, what we're saying is one of the great external uh, checks 
on statutory instruments and acts is access to the courts where persons can ensure that their fundamental rights are recognized and ensure that they are not trampled upon, but also proportionality in respect of what is going on at the particular time and in respect of the emergency. If the committee has any questions it would like to ask me or if the Bar of Ireland can be of any further assistance, as I, you just need to ask. So thank you very much for the time. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms O'Boyle, can I ask that you now make your opening statement and again that you can, if you would limit it to five minutes, please, we'd appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Chair. Uh, let me begin by thanking you and the committee for inviting us to attend today's meeting. We have watched with great interest as the committee has focused on various aspects of the state's response to COVID-19. And we appreciate your work in examining the legislative framework underpinning that action. The March 2020 lockdown impacted every aspect of Irish life, including the work of the legal profession and the courts. From the outset of the crisis, the judiciary, the legal profession and the court service worked tirelessly and collaboratively to maintain the most urgent of services and to restore others insofar as it was possible to do so. Of course, the operations of government departments and state agencies were also severely impacted. And I want to thank the officials who worked with us throughout the crisis to ensure that wherever possible, vital services remained available to solicitors and their clients. April marked a seismic shift in the manner in which justice is administered in the state with the commencement of remote hearings. And recent months have seen a remarkable fast forwarding of the adoption and implementation of technology right across the profession. We are all participants in that change, which is likely to be permanent, as many traditional ways of doing business is unlikely to ever return. A fact recognized by the recent addition of the parameters for remote hearings to the statute book. As you know, the state's legislative response came in the form of two pieces of primary legislation, which were supplemented and extended by secondary instruments. While many aspects of Ireland's response were successful and compared favorably with other jurisdictions, there was a need for clearer communication as to precisely what restrictions were being imposed, the rationale for those restrictions, whether or not they were intended to have legal effect, and any sanctions for those breaches. In order to assist the committee's consideration of the legislative response in other jurisdictions, the Society has provided some recent case law and detailed information on initiatives adopted right across Europe. We hope that this, together with this morning's input from representatives of the profession, will assist the committee in framing the Irish response within a wider context. So, what are our recommendations? It is, of course, evident in the face of a pandemic which spread with such speed that no state's legislative framework, including Ireland, could have been fully prepared to deal with the challenges which would and did arise. Whilst acknowledging that everything was moving at a speed to address a rapidly changing and uncertain environment, 
there are lessons to be learned and steps to be taken to ensure that in the event of a similar crisis, a number of issues can be better addressed. In that regard, the Society makes the following recommendations for consideration by the Committee. Sweeping powers granted under the emergency legislation led to the introduction of regulations which required people to largely remain in their homes and limit social interactions. This impacted on a range of fundamental rights which are protected under the Constitution and the European Convention of Human Rights. We have set out the parameters of the Heaney test around the proportionality of regulations in our submission to the committee. While the courts may ultimately answer the question of whether recent measures were constitutional in the event of a credible legal challenge being brought, and while the situation facing the state in March was unprecedented, when interfering in the fundamental rights of citizens, the least intrusive approach possible which achieves the required result should always be taken. Also of note is the test established in the City View press case, which requires that any regulations introduced that flow from, for example, the Health Act 1947, cannot exceed the principles and policies expressed in that primary legislation. Our second recommendation is around enhancing clarity. It is a requirement under Irish law EU law and the European Convention of Human Rights, that there should be certainty as to the nature of obligations placed on individuals. On some occasions, the communications around restrictions fell short of providing such certainty, because the extent and application of those restrictions was unclear. Statements of guidance by ministers or public authorities which purport to regulate the behaviour or activities of the public citizens or indeed businesses are not satisfactory. If such requirements are considered sufficiently important to be mandatory, they should be placed on a satisfactory legal footing to ensure that private citizens and businesses can clearly understand what it is they must adhere to. The successful use of technology during the crisis and the introduction of a legislative framework to facilitate remote hearings paves the way for the court service and the judiciary to offer an improved and more cost-efficient service to the public. In order to achieve this, fit-for-purpose technology platforms must be available to support remote court hearings. It is essential that in developing appropriate systems, the court service is not constrained by the limitations of its existing infrastructure. Thank you, Ms. Boyle. I'd, <clears throat> I'd ask you to conclude, please. Uh, your opening remarks are, have been circulated to members in advance, but if there's any concluding remarks that you'd like to make, I'd ask you to do so. Thank you. Well, it is important for Ireland uh, to continue to invest in the court service infrastructure, staff and other resources. Um, I'd also like to add that there are a number of small recommendations uh, which we also included in, 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 around the attendance at court, and some courts, in particular the district court, uh, remain crowded. Uh, however, I 
want to take the opportunity to acknowledge the enormous and unrelenting work of the presidents of the courts in this endeavour to manage the numbers of people, and in particular in the district court, where by its nature the numbers are large. Um, in conclusion, as a profession, we, like many others, have had to adjust, adapt and respond quickly to the unprecedented challenges posed by COVID-19. We've been particularly fortunate to have developed and maintained constructive working relationships with other stakeholders, including the judiciary, our colleagues at the bar, the court service, government department and state agencies. We look forward to continued constructive engagement and collaboration across the myriad of evolving issues, which we know will continue very much, to Ms. Boyle. all of us over the coming months and beyond. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Kenny, could I ask now for your opening statement, please? Uh, and I'd ask you to, uh, to limit yourself to five minutes, please, uh, bearing in mind that the paper which you, have um, which you have submitted has been circulated. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. I'd like to thank the committee for the opportunity to offer evidence today. I'm here in my capacity as coordinator of the Trinity College Dublin COVID-19 Law and Human Rights Observatory, which considers and analyses many aspects of Ireland's response to the pandemic. As requested by the committee, the observatory made a submission on several aspects of public governance, and I'll briefly speak to these here. The first matter we wish to highlight is the general adequacy of our constitutional and legislative system in responding to the pandemic. Ireland did not declare a constitutional state of emergency in response to COVID-19. The emergency powers in the Irish Constitution are not applicable in a pandemic or natural disaster. They can only be used in case of war or armed rebellion. Instead, Ireland very quickly drafted and enacted two pieces of legislation, which though framed as emergency measures, do not enjoy special legal or constitutional status. In spite of this, Ireland was able to mount an effective legislative response, with the legislation seemingly having been adequate to enable swift and flexible response to this crisis. There has been no credible suggestion that the legislation is unconstitutional. We note in our submission several areas where where constitutional objections to proposed measures have been mooted, such as entry into private dwellings and the extension on an evictions moratorium. However, it is unclear the extent to which it was these constitutional concerns that prevented the taking of these measures or how valid these constitutional objections were. Therefore, based on this evidence, we suggest that our legislative and constitutional framework has been adequate to respond to the pandemic and there would be no need for express constitutional emergency powers to react to natural disasters or public health emergencies. There may be a case for standing public health emergency legislation to allow for swift response to public health crises by the executive in the event that the legislature could not meet or was incompletely constituted. Such legislation would have to have very strict limitations and accountability mechanisms, such as judicial oversight, time limitations on its use, and a requirement for legislative approval of its use as soon as practicable to ensure it could not be misused. We also highlighted in our submission several possible improvements to the current COVID-19 legislative response. The most important of these, we think, is the need for better sunsetting clauses or time limitations in the legislation. The best approach, we suggest, would be to render the legislation defunct in the absence of express reauthorization by the Oireachtas for certain specified, limited and defined periods. The second issue we wish to highlight is the need for a return as a matter of urgency to the full function of the Oireachtas and the full operation of the committee system. This is essential during a time when we have handed over extraordinary powers to the executive. This committee has done an admirable job of providing scrutiny of the state's pandemic response, but the range of matters that require oversight is simply too broad for a single committee. 
The ordinary committees of the Iraqis are needed to oversee the effect of the pandemic response in discrete areas, while this committee focuses on the impact of more extraordinary measures taken and the overall efficacy of the state's response. The establishment of committees has been frustrated by the apparent inability of the houses and committees to have remote sittings. This is based on what we suggest is questionable legal advice that remote sittings are constitutionally impermissible. For reasons we have summarised in our submission and set out in detail elsewhere, we see very little basis for this view. Given the likely ongoing difficulties of convening frequent in-person meetings with all necessary participants, it is essential that remote or hybrid sittings be considered. Thirdly, we would highlight the need for much greater scrutiny by the Iraqis of individual regulations and the manner in which they have been made. The two emergency acts give vast power to the government to make regulations. This is necessary and, as we argue in our submission, constitutional. But given their extraordinary scope and their potential to restrict the rights and liberties of members of the public, these regulations must be close, closely overseen by Parliament. We would suggest, following the New Zealand example, that any regulation made under these acts would be disallowed and cease to have any effect unless the legislature positively affirms the regulation within 10 sitting days. Fourthly, there are several rule of law concerns in respect to the pandemic regulations that we outline in our submission. One significant problem is the failure to promulgate or publish regulations in a timely manner. Ideally, this should be done before they come into effect to allow scrutiny, comment and explanation. We would recommend a statutory requirement similar to the one found in New Zealand, that regulations be published 48 hours in advance of their coming into effect, unless there are public health reasons that make this requirement unworkable. Another major issue is the failure to properly communicate the content of regulations. This is most problematic in the repeated elision in state communications of legal requirements and public health advice. For example, it was unclear to those cocooning in the most severe period of movement restrictions if they were legally required to remain in their homes. They were not. It has been heavily implied on several instances and in several fora that the requirement to isolate for 14 days after travel is a legal obligation. It is not, and it has never has been. It might be thought in some quarters this is a useful strategy for ensuring compliance with public health advice, as people will be more likely to comply if they think they are legally obliged to do so. But such a strategy raises serious rule of law concerns and has real costs. It confuses members of the public, erodes public trust in communication about the law, and is an abuse of state power, implying a legal threat that simply does not exist. This, we think, could have long-term consequences in terms of public confidence in and compliance with legal obligations and public health advice in respect of the pandemic. Once again, we thank the committee for the opportunity to discuss these issues, and I'll be delighted to answer any questions that members might have. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kenny. <clears throat> the uh, first speaker in this session is uh, Deputy Devlin of Fianna Fáil. Six and a half minutes, I think, is it? Pardon? Six and a half yeah. minutes or something? Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Chair, and thank you to all the witnesses uh, for their opening remarks and for their statements. Um, if I could turn to uh, Ms. McNally first, uh, and you, you made a very lengthy submission uh, to the committee in advance of today, and we appreciate that. Um, certainly in terms of your opening remarks there about proportionality and uh, the emergency uh, necessity, I suppose, and it's absolutely crucial that that balance is struck. Um, and particularly now, as we move away from the more stringent restrictions in society and we try reopen the court services. And it's on that basis that I have a number of questions for you, if I may. Um, access to the courts obviously is crucial, uh, both the civil and criminal uh, courts. But I'm going to hone in on the criminal aspect, if I may, first. 
And the delays in which have not really been experienced because of the summer months and the, the lifting of those restrictions that I spoke about. But uh, if you might give the committee a flavour of maybe the range and types of cases that we're talking about, the breadth of, of, of those cases um, that are being held up at, at the present. And equally, in terms of a, a delay, what kind of delay are we talking? Are we talking eight months, 12 months longer? Um, now, obviously, it's all approximate, but I would appreciate your, your comments nonetheless. Um, the Central Criminal Court, uh, you had specifically referenced that, and I note there were statements uh, about both the, the Circuit uh, Criminal Court and, and the um, Central Criminal Court. I presume the same applies for the Special Criminal Court, but you might just elaborate on that as well, please. Um, and in terms of the dates, you, you, you say that the, the Circuit Court uh, was returning in September, so at some point this month. I'm just wondering if that has been um, if that date has been released, please. Thank you. Um, sorry. For, firstly, I'll start with the dates and I'll start with the criminal courts. Uh, the circuit criminal courts, they recommenced on the 31st of August of this year. And though September is considered part of the vacation period, uh, the uh, judiciary, the court service, uh, announced that the courts would sit during September and hence all practitioners are, are back and available as such. But they, the restriction is in respect of what is available. You have to look at the regulations that prescribe the numbers of persons who can be in any particular room or any particular building. With that in mind, for example, if you look at the court lists for the High Court for personal injury, we'll say, and I'll take court 10 as an example. When you look at that list in a bracket after it, it says capacity 10. That means 10 persons, only 10 persons can go into that court. So you've got your judge, your registrar, you've got your legal team for the plaintiff and a legal team for the defendant. You've got a plaintiff and, and defendant themselves, expert witnesses. So you're trying to fit the equivalent of a square peg into a round hole. Everyone is doing their best to ensure that there is access to justice. For example, in civil cases, uh, if you take uh, plaintiffs with, with catastrophic injuries, their accident could have happened three or four years ago. They're trying to get their case on where liability is in dispute, but the resources aren't there. And by resource, I mean not just personnel, but I mean accommodation for the numbers of persons required. So that unfortunate plaintiff who may be no longer at work because of injury, uh, is requiring a specialist treatment because of injury, they now have to wait even longer for their case to be heard, for them to achieve justice, and for them to achieve the reward, which would include monetary compensation for the injury, monetary compensation to ensure they get the appropriate treatment, etc. So bearing that in mind on the civil end, it affects all civil cases. So we're, we're limited by what the infrastructure will physically allow. In respect of the criminal uh, cases, the central criminal court uh, is now moving out of Dublin because of the uh, limited capacity of the CCJ, the Central uh, Criminal Courts of Justice. So for example, to try and address its backlog, it's moving to courthouses such as Castle Bar, 
The knock-on effect of that in Castle Bar is that the circuit cases and indeed the district court that would normally sit there, they have to move and make room for those particular cases. But those are murder cases, rape cases, etc. They're moving to sit in Kilkenny. They're moving to sit in Cork. But again, you've gone from buildings that 12 months ago could accommodate every type of case to under the regulations and under assessment where you must keep your two meters, suddenly a building that could take 100 people six months ago can now only take 20 people. And that's a logistical issue that we acknowledge and appreciate that the court service and the judiciary are trying to address. But the only means of appropriately overcoming that is with proper investment in the infrastructure. And by that, I mean uh, rent buildings. So if, for example, you're going to have a court in Carrick and Shannon or a court in Drogheda or, or a court in Mullingar or wherever, the courthouse itself won't be big enough to accommodate it. So you'll have to bring the jury to a ballroom somewhere so that they can be impaneled. You'll have to ensure that there's a safe room for people, all of that. But it all requires monetary investment and monetary investment in the court system. Now, you asked about backlogs. The, the person and party who can address this with, with greater accuracy is the Department of Justice and indeed the court services. But we know anecdotally that on average, you have in criminal cases, you have anywhere between 900 and 1,000 criminal cases in a year. Since the pandemic commenced, March until now, that's six months. That's six months of little or no sittings. So when you had a 12-month delay in the year 2019, you can now add the six months where courts couldn't sit, and you can now add to that that backlog on top of that backlog. And that has to be addressed, not only in respect of civil cases, but also in respect of criminal cases. Because from the criminal perspective particularly, there are two issues. It is the rule of law. It is ensuring that those who break the law are, are appropriately um, brought to court and addressed. You have the victims uh, of incidents of crime. They're entitled to have their day in court. You have persons who feel that they are uh, incorrectly been brought before the court. They have the right to have their uh, fundamental rights protected and the right I, to be defended. I, I could just intervene and thank you very much for that information. Right. I really appreciate that. Uh, just very quickly, because I, I, I know you're both familiar with this, the CC, CCJ only a couple of years ago wanted to uh, kind of shrink all the district courts into its bill. Building. And thankfully, that didn't happen uh, to the extent in which they, the court services wanted that to happen, because we'd be in a totally different uh, situation now. But just very briefly, Chairman, um, Mr. Boyle touched on the remote court hearings uh, and the success, I suppose, of that. Um, and look, like everything, everybody's learning in this new uh, era. Um, but do you think that with that kind of modernisation, do you think that that's something that may stay post-COVID, uh, Mr. Boyle? I have to say that the remote hearings uh, was a success and it was only because of I, I suppose, the willingness of all of the stakeholders to make that happen. Uh, we did have trial court hearings during the summer uh, and um, I, I do think that because uh, of the difficulties that Ms McNally's pointed out in terms of the infrastructure and the capacity of the courts, that if we are going to ensure access to justice going forward, we will have to adopt a model uh, of remote hearings. Currently, we do have remote hearings for some callovers of court lists. There are some matters which can certainly be dealt with uh, which don't require uh, a court hearing 
you know, the judge's times can more usefully be used in dealing with contentious matters rather than matters which could be dealt with remotely, as I say, which includes things like uh, call over lists uh, and, and all of that. But I, I do, going forward, I do see it if there is appropriate investment in the correct infrastructure, I do see it uh, as a, uh, being the way forward. And I think it will assist in the access to justice and possibly cheaper, uh, uh, um, you know, running of, of the court services. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Devlin. Uh, the next speaker is Deputy Kenny from Sinn Féin. Just Deputy Daly, you're coming in in the second round, I think. Yeah, so it'll be maybe some time later. But go ahead, Deputy Kenny. Thank you very much, Chairman. And I, I want to thank the three contributors for their, their opening statements. Uh, they were most informative. Uh, particularly, I, I, I want to first of all focus on, on the issues that was raised by David Kenny in regard to the, um, the scrutiny or other ways of legislation and where that has brought us and, and the difficulties that that has, has um, came from all of that. Um, the point you make in regard to Australia, I think, was a, I think it was Australia was a jurisdiction you mentioned where the, the regulations are published 48 hours before they come into action and therefore there's a, some small period of time to, to look at them and to have some comment upon them. Um, I, I would suggest that perhaps uh, regulations should have a, a type of, of pre-regulation scrutiny as similar to what we would normally have in, in pre-legislative scrutiny. And I think that would be an appropriate way forward that a committee of the Oireachtas would look at and examine uh, regulations as they come into play, because we've seen that it is in that aspect that has been the most difficult, that um, for the vast majority of people out there, they, they see regulations come into play where common sense doesn't apply. And it has caused uh, somewhat upheaval because Really, when and I made this point earlier in another session, that one of the, the, the key issues here is that we have to try and have unity of purpose, and indeed to try and have unity of purpose, not just politically, but with the community and with everyone out there, that all, all sections of society work together for the common good, recognising that certain aspects of their liberty has been uh, denied or curtailed to some, expect, to some extent, but at least that's for, for a purpose and that they buy into that. However, if regulations don't make sense to people, if, for instance, um, we have a situation where in places like where I come from in County Leitrim, where we have very low numbers of COVID and people can't even go to a football match, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't see any sense in that. And I, I think the regulations would require um, a sense of scrutiny, which would be public, and people would see that scrutiny happening and would know what was going on and would understand the arguments and understand the counter-arguments. And I, I'd just like to get, get comment on that. Um, there was also the, the issue of, of, of the courts and... Uh, I think many of the things that we've had and many of the difficulties we've had with regard to uh, how the regulations around COVID have restricted people's movements and indeed restricted their ability to carry on what was considered normal life before uh, has been exacerbated by the fact that so much of our society and so much of the systems out there were already at stress and we're already in difficulty. We see that in our education system. We had overcrowded schools. We had high pupil teacher ratios. We had difficulties with school transport prior to this. In our court services, you know, people from impoverished backgrounds found it very difficult for to access uh, uh, the criminal justice system. And, and you know, and I, we, we have all come across the situations where, where people who would be um, perhaps entitled to take a case further, particularly the, the, the my, my colleague previously mentioned around uh, a case of, for instance, someone who would who would be taking a case for for an injury or something. You know, they will settle early because they don't have the money to wait, and and, and that that has been exacerbated by the situation now. So I think you know there needs to be an acknowledgement of that. That this crisis also creates opportunity to look closely at all of those things and see how we can 
determine uh, solutions for them which will be long and sustainable and be there past COVID because the reality is I think we'll have to learn to live with COVID and move forward on that. So I'd like to get the comments from the, the three panellists on that regard to that. Thank you. If I can respond briefly to the, the, the first point, thank you very much, um, Deputy. Yes, the, the jurisdiction I was referring to was New Zealand, um, which uh, requires as a matter of law that um, regulations are published in advance unless there is, again, some, some pressic, pressing public health reason that that can't be done. I would agree that a, a form of pre-legislative scrutiny for regulations would be even better if that were, if that were possible, uh, operating on the assumption that might be difficult in terms of uh, the time available um, for, for the making of regulations. Uh, but certainly I think that would be uh, ideal, particularly to encourage better understanding and then public communication about the contents of regulations. I think availability in advance and scrutiny in advance would help with that. I also believe that, again, following New Zealand, the idea of defaulting the regulations if they don't receive uh, ex post parliamentary uh, approval would, would be uh, a benefit. There's been some improvement in terms of uh, our regulations insofar as the most recent uh, major set, the temporary restriction number four regulations, you might call them, um, when uh, published, uh, were published on the, on, on the 31st of August and weren't to come into force until the 3rd of September. But at the same time, there was a long delay between essentially the public announcement of those regulations. We were told that these were coming in the middle of August and it took essentially two weeks for those regulations to arrive. So we have made some progress, but there's still more progress to be made in terms of giving people notice uh, that these regulations are coming in and also acting swiftly to make sure we have the proper law in place for the restrictions that we want to enforce. Mr. Murphy has his hand up. I'll, I'll, you haven't spoken. Thank you. I should shut up for a moment. I don't, I don't know. I know a member of the bar is chairing the committee, but I don't know if you're actually chairing the session here. I don't know. Oh, um, Chairman, may I, may I come in on this? Um, just in, in response to uh, Deputy Kenny and to express um, in, in full support for that proposal, it is thematic in the Law Society submission that um, the issue of being able to identify um, what is law and what is guidance and the difference between the two and the potential for sanctions for breach of the law is, uh, is essential. Um, there is a um, uh, confusion in relation to this and there may be, I'd like to just clear up some confusion if there is any in relation to an Irish Times headline this morning which seemed to suggest that it was a law society suggestion that confusion between the two had been deliberate um, uh, by the state. The Law Society is not suggesting that. It's not part of our submission. Uh, but we do think that just as the law always strives for certainty, um, inevitably, in the, in the need, in circumstances where there was enormous need for speed of response, uh, which, which the state rose to admirably, really during those crisis um, weeks and months, there was some, there was some absence of certainty and the capacity of the public to be able to distinguish what was law and what was guidance. We're not suggesting there was a deliberate confusion of the two um, by, any, by the state or any or, or organ of the state, but we do think, uh, and this is thematic, as I say, of the society's uh, submission, is that for the future, there should be greater clarity. Uh, as we say in the submission, there is a need for communication, as clearer communication as to what restrictions are being posed, the rationales for these, and whether or not they are intended to have legal effect and the sanctions for breaching them if they are legally binding. Because a consequence of an absence of, of that is confusion and potentially resentment uh, due to that lack of clarity. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Does anybody else wish to come in on Deputy just Kenny? Just come in there just on, on two particular points. Um, 
as you said earlier today, um, Deputy McNamara, I think it was in the uh, opening speech that you made this morning, we have two types of legislation. That is primary legislation, which are the acts, the statutes, and then the secondary legislation, which is the statutory instruments or the regulations. Anything thereafter is simply guidance. It does not have the effect of law. There can be no penal sanction in respect of a purported or alleged breach of guidance. So you, you did say that earlier, and I just wanted to emphasize that so that there is no doubt about that. And then I just wanted to go back to the issue of the remote hearings. One of the basic precepts of our democracy and our constitution is access to justice. And not only must justice be done, but it must be seen to be done. And that includes, in criminal cases, the rights of victims to appear in court and address the court. It's the right of the parties to present. Remote hearings are good in certain instances, but they are not the cure-all. They are not the panacea that they are being made out as. People want to be in court. There are certain instances where you literally have to see the whites of their eyes. The verbiage, the behavior of persons, not only what they're saying, but how they are saying it. You need to be able to read people and see how to read people. And that is one of the things about having people, our citizens, in court. And in any, sorry, not in any, in most criminal cases, members of the public are allowed in to see cases being run. In civil cases, similarly so. Restrictions would arise in respect of minors being involved, etc. But leaving that aside, as I say, justice has to be done, but has to be seen to be done. Paperless cases, um, the ones that require people to stand up and speak, be heard to speak, be heard to have their say in court, the remote hearings will not work, work in those particular instances in our submission. Um, Ali, that's it. Kenny, you're yeah, thank, you, time, thank, you, thank you very much. For, thank you very much for, the, for, for your contributions. Uh, I think the point that Ms. McNally made in the latter point in regard to justice being seen to be done is, is vitally important, and, and there is some, I think, uh, clear uh, problems there that, that the remote hearings can throw up for very many people, uh, where they, 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 you know, it's, it's a tradition that people want to have their day in court, but yet if they're not allowed to actually be in court, that they don't feel that that has happened and they don't, they don't understand why that isn't happening. And I think it, it brings us to a broader point in regard to the whole COVID situation, that in reality, you know, whatever regulations we bring in and, and, and try and, whether they're guidelines or whether they have penal sanction or not, you know, we have to have, we have, to have public confidence in them. And that's, I think, at the, at the core of all of this. And building that co public confidence, I think, will require uh, a level of, of leadership, a level of leadership from, from everyone, including political leadership, but also from, from the various other sectors out there, and particularly, and, and I commend uh, the, the people involved of our council and, and, and the other various agencies, that the work that has been done to try and do that, and to try and bring people along, and to try and make people, people understand what has to happen here and how we have to try and, and deliver for everyone. Um, the, the, the issue which I think comes to mind immediately is the infrastructure which is in place and how that infrastructure can be improved. And if the improvement of the infrastructure is one aspect of it and the other aspect of it is perhaps some changes to the regulations to allow 
perhaps larger numbers attend in certain circumstances. For instance, uh, in, in general, as we move in and out of here from the houses of the Iraqis, except from the times when we're sitting in our chairs and speaking, we, we wear masks to ensure that we don't spread if, if there is any aspect of that danger to happen. And I think, you know, if there were uh, stricter guidelines around all of that, perhaps some of the buildings which was noted that were, were small and cramped and could have very limited access, perhaps there needs to be a reassessment of all of that in regard to court services. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy Kenny. Um, if I could bring in the next speaker from Fine Gael, Deputy Burke, are you taking 10 minutes, sir? Let's go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Chairperson, and could I thank the, um, all of the contributors here for their um, presentations and for the submissions that they have made, and indeed for the work that they are doing within the legal services. I think it's important that there are checks and balances between the executive, uh, the legislative, and the, and, and the, the, the courts. Um, could I just deal with one particular issue, and that's in relation to regulation. As someone who comes from a legal background and was involved a number of years ago in identifying where regulation was brought in 20 years earlier, um, and a colleague of mine and myself identified that, in fact, there was no supporting legislation for the regulation. Um, as a result of highlighting it, uh, emergency legislation was brought before the Dáil and Shannon passed in three days. The president of the day uh, referred it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Uh, and as a result, over 400 million had to be refunded to people. And that regulation was in place for over 20 years. Um, and even though one element of the health services had received a senior counsel's opinion advising um, that the regulation um, was not in order, still nothing was done for uh, a further 25, 20 years until we highlighted it. And I'm just wondering in relation to in this period of time now, what has occurred uh, since March, um, uh, what do you believe we should now do in relation to a lot of regulation would have come in place, and not only just in relation to healthcare, but in other areas as well. Do we? Do you feel that it's time now to look at this issue in relation to regulation about checks and balances and making sure that the executive has not exceeded its powers in bringing forward regulation without adequate scrutiny? And I suppose the executive is very slow when bringing in regulation and putting a time limit on it because they're afraid then when that time limit expires, no one has uh, flagged it and as a result, um, issues can then arise. So there's been a reluctance to put in time limits on regulation. So I'm just wondering what's your own view on this issue over what has occurred, in particular um, because the, the same level of scrutiny hasn't been here in the Oireachtas uh, over the last six to eight months. So maybe you might give your views on that. Miss, um, thank you very much. Would you wish to answer first? Uh, maybe the Bar Council? Oh, the Bar Council first, please, yeah. Um, I don't know if, is the microphone on? Um, ju just in respect of that, as I said earlier, and has been outlined by the, the Chairman, Deputy McNamara, the primary legislation is the Act, is the statute, and the secondary supporting um, legislation are the statutory instruments and regulations. They are the means by which the principles and purpose and aim of the act can be put into effect. It can never go outside of 
the parameters of that act for it to be lawful. So in other words, if an act is about making sure all cars are blue, then you can't bring in a regulation or a statutory instrument that says they can be blue and white because the act had a specific goal, a specific aim. So any secondary legislation is only to push that primary reason forward to ensure it is effected properly and proportionally and within the bounds of our constitution and within the bounds uh, of what is our recognized law. So from that perspective, you, you, you mentioned um, that there was a regulation from some 20 years ago. And I think that what you're talking about now is how do you review regulations? And though the Bar Council doesn't have a view on that because that's a matter for the legislature, um, it would appear logical that the stakeholders, not only in respect of primary acts, but the stakeholders and the parties involved should also be aware of the possible ramifications and repercussions of that regulation. So in other words, if it's going to be an act about cars and there's a regulation to be brought in, then surely you should ask car manufacturers, uh, licensed taxi drivers, uh, car mechanics, people who have an interest in it, who could either add uh, or consider it and make submissions. But that's a matter for the Oireachtas and for the legislature to decide how they are to do that. But as I say, it must be done in a constitutional fashion and it must be done as, as, as a means of promulgating and pushing forward that original act. I hope but, that... But do you believe because of what occurred over the last six months in particular that you, you didn't have the same level of scrutiny that we should now look and say list out all of the regulations that have been brought in say since the 1st of March uh, and at some stage over the next six months say well is there any one of these that we need to review to make sure it doesn't exceed uh, the um, it doesn't it doesn't give uh, additional powers um, or additional um, procedures that are not covered by legislation and that's the question that I really ask because when you have an emergency situation, things can happen where not all the T's are crossed and not all, all the I's are dotted. And I'm just wondering, do we need to be careful on something like this at this period of time? Well, from the Bar Council perspective, we would be the party that would be engaged if there was a judicial review or a challenge to the constitutionality of either a primary piece of legislation or the secondary piece of legislation. But when it comes to determining the actual uh, framework and determining whether the minister in invoking or signing into law a particular statutory instrument or regulation is correct and appropriate, that falls to the legislature as I said earlier, for example, under the Health Act Section uh, 5 thereof, you have the right to bring matters back for review. Or if somebody has an outside challenge, an individual, a citizen, a party, a person who's interested, they can bring a challenge to the other means of checking and ensuring that things are constitutional. That is the courts. And again, I don't want to go back over old ground by addressing access to the courts and access to justice and the infrastructure. But it's, it's not actually... Um, 
for the Bar Council. I think it is potentially something that could be addressed by either the Law Society or either Trinity, whom I, I know are carrying out a review of the various uh, statutory instruments and acts in respect of this, unless I'm mistaken. But from our perspective, it's not our role to, to do that. Could I, could I just ask in relation to the uh, remote hearings and in particular um, in relation to mental health tribunals and also in relation to family law issues, uh, family law courts, um, and this is probably uh, to the President of the Law Society, are there issues uh, that you're aware of that need to be now re-looked at in relation to trying to improve what can be done in some other court areas in relation to remote hearings um, and, and what level of improvements do you believe could be uh, put in place to try and assist people to making sure that they're all the um, all of the proper uh, procedures uh, um, are being followed and it's it's in making sure that there is fairness in the way decisions are arrived at well, I am aware that uh, in remote hearings, for example, in family law matters, uh, there have not been, I understand, contested hearings. There, there are matters that are on consent. Um, so so I, I suppose it's a bit early to say as to what those issues are. But I imagine that the issues in family law matters are not unique to family law matters. There's always the issue of confidentiality in remote hearings and ensuring that it is a, a, the platform is a secure, safe environment. Um, perhaps Mr Murphy would like to add to that. I mean, the remote hearings commenced in April uh, on the initiative uh, led by the Chief Justice, uh, but particularly in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, which are appellate courts, where they, in many ways, these are more suited for remote hearings. Um, and because they don't take, um, it's more arguments, uh, it's, it's more a forum for, for legal argument uh, than for evidence. Um, and in, in terms of, and it's worked very successfully there, among the issues has been uh, the technology and whether the technology used for the remote hearings in the Supreme Court and the High Court in, and the Court of Appeal is as it should be because the, the, the technology actually used was never designed for court hearings. It's essentially a meeting form of technology. Uh, and there were problems with, and the Law Society was happily, happily to engage with the bar and others with the uh, court service to try and set up uh, better technological platforms. Um, as the President of the Law Society has said, a lot of um, uh, review matters, procedural matters, are taking place uh, by remote hearings now. Um, it is more questionable, and we follow the debate in, in the United Kingdom, where they're having a similar experience to us, um, where there is an ongoing debate as to how well remote hearings can work for evidence-based, witness-based um, cases. Um, it is certainly likely to be more problematic. Um, but I think that one of the, um, uh, certainly the Law Society view, is that investment in this, this is the way of the future for some cases. And I agree with the Chair of the Bar Council, it's by no means it convinced that it's the way of the future for all cases, but it's the way of the future for some cases. Uh, and we should not be going backwards on that now, now that we've come in an accelerated way to where we are. Um, but one of the problems that the court service suffers from at the moment is a cut in its income, uh, because a lot of the income of the court service in the course of an annual financial year comes from certain types of applications that are made to court, for example, licensing applications, special licensing applications, which are paid for in the course of the year. That income has been almost entirely lost. The court service is suffering at the moment 
from uh, from um, deficiencies of income, um, which um, is impacting its capacity to upgrade technology and to use, as, as the Chair of the Bar Council suggested, to use outside facilities, outside of courtrooms, uh, to hire um, premises outside of courtrooms to assist the use of uh, the courtrooms. So there are issues to do with, um, with investment, which really, uh, both on the technological side and the general support of the access to justice and the court system, are real. Uh, and I'm sure the court service would feel, if they were here, they'd be making that point. I want to make it on their behalf. Okay. Thank you. Thanks Thank you, much. Deputy Burke. Was, did you have another? In there on the subject. Are out of time, I'd bring you in at the end. If okay, all right, thanks. Thanks, Chair. Thanks very much. Um, the next speaker is uh, Deputy Ledden. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you uh, to the witnesses for attending today. And uh, congratulations, Ms. McNally, on your, your recent appointment also. Um, I suppose I might use the time to, uh, uh, to further that discussion that Deputy Burke uh, started just uh, before me there on uh, access to justice with remote hearings, and uh, particularly uh, you know, in the case of litigants who may not have Wi-Fi connections or disabilities. Um, perhaps Ms. O'Boyle or Mr. Murphy, you might expound on that, please. And uh, I would be interested to hear the views of Dr. Kenny and Ms. McNally also. I suppose just to say that while the court service and the judiciary uh, have done a remarkable job in facilitating remote hearings uh, using an infrastructure which in many respects does need reinforcement and upgrade, uh, it is important that a stronger technological platform is made available uh, to support the remote hearings. Um, it's also important that when, when uh, investing in technology, the court service does so in a technologically neutral way, which will ensure that Ireland can take advantage of the emerging technology in a rapidly changing environment. Um, shall, shall I could I, I maybe sorry, uh, my, sorry, my, Mr. We, we could add that this is happening all over the world. Um, remote hearings are happening in many, many jurisdictions now, and we can learn from other jurisdictions. And one of the reasons for investing, and, and the, the justice system uh, should be investing in this, because this is the way of the future, not for all cases, perhaps not even for the majority of cases, um, but it is going to be a way of the future for many cases. And Ireland, to the extent to which Ireland, uh, with, you know, backing of government is seeking to position itself as a forum for international dispute resolution um, uh, of, of all kinds, major, particularly international major commercial cases uh, that may be, uh, that have no particular connection with this jurisdiction, but that Ireland could be a useful forum for such, um, for such type of uh, dispute resolution, having cutting edge ed uh, technology in our courts is the way to go. And I'd certainly unhesitatingly say that's what the Law Society recommends. We should have cutting-edge technology in our courts to facilitate remote hearings. Uh, th thank you, uh, Mr. Murphy. I might just come in there on this, the subject of the remote hearings, and I have to say that this is a concern of the Bar Council. Uh, for example, I'm sure Deputy Kenny will be aware. Uh, I myself am from Leitrim. He's not aware of that, but he will be aware of the fact that the broadband in Leitrim leaves a lot to be desired. We have members in Donegal, and we're lucky if we catch every 10th word they say, because the broadband capacity and the investment in the infrastructure that is required in respect thereof has been dismal. And the broadband capacity outside of certain areas, including Dublin or certain built-up areas, is limited. 
It is, to a degree, Dublin-centric. So if you're trying to run a case in Galway or Mayo or Donegal or in Kerry or in some of the islands off the coast, your chance of an appropriate remote hearing premised upon the technological capacity that is now available, that has purportedly been invested in, is limited to say the least. It is abysmal. It's fine once you get past a certain point on the M4 or the M7 or the M9. And I don't wish to be geographical, but once you go outside a certain area, remote hearings just do not work. And that is for every type of case, not just the remote hearings where they could work, i.e., where you have preliminary applications, so you don't need the plaintiff there, you don't need the defendant there, you just need the lawyers. Even with that, you can't hear them. They're breaking up. So talking about the panacea of remote hearings, you have to look at the actual circumstances that obtain and prevail in this country in respect of that. I just wanted to say that in respect of remote hearings. Yeah, thank, thank you, Ms. McNally, and I think that's a very well-made and, and important point. And Dr. Kenny, have, would you like to come in on that particular issue? Is there a particular position that you'd take as an academic in, in this area? Thank you very much. Just one, one point I think I would add, except to say that I, I fully agree with all the concerns raised by my colleagues. Uh, just I think something that we will eventually have to consider more carefully is the requirement of public uh, access to justice, that is that justice be administered in public and that members of the public get to see justice being done. And as we consider uh, what we do with remote hearings, I think it would be very important to provide for that in an ongoing way, but also to consider that if we make uh, uh, court hearings much more accessible by way of uh, being available online, that also raises some privacy concerns in terms of the details about people's lives that can be uh, put out in court hearing. And it's quite different, perhaps, for that to be heard by a few people who choose to come to court to hear it versus if that is uh, available online or available in a lasting way. And I think those are concerns that we'll have to consider if we decide to move uh, to, to online hearings in the longer term and in a more, in a more uh, uh, permanent manner. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the next speaker is Deputy Smith. Um, in our first session this morning, there was a lot of discussions about the proportionality of the legislative response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis. Uh, and just if I could direct uh, the question first to uh, Dr. Kenny, and then if, if the other witnesses would like to answer. Um, overall, uh, how do you rate Ireland's legislative response in terms of proportionality to the seriousness of the pandemic? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, I think that the legislation um, did a reasonably good job in a number of respects. Uh, I think it did a good job in giving enough power to the executive in terms of having to respond incredibly quickly in a situation where convening the legislature was potentially impossible. While at the same time, and this is something that uh, um, uh, both my, my colleagues have, have raised, it, it did so in a way that did attempt to restrict that power, in particular with what we call principles and policies, the idea that the legislation guides ministers in making regulations and doesn't leave them at large to do simply anything they wish. The Health Act in particular, Section 10, has a really extraordinary power to, to, to make regulations that can affect people's lives and livelihoods and, and uh, uh, fundamental rights. But it attempts to 
direct the minister on how to use that power. It has a very detailed list of considerations the minister must take into account and then a further list of things the minister may take into account. And in doing that, it attempts to direct and guide the use of those powers. So in terms of the legislation, I think it did a reasonably good job in that respect. Uh, also in terms of individual regulations made under it, I think that Ireland has wisely erred on the side of trying to use advice rather than coercive measures for some of, in particular, the more uh, personal restrictions that we've placed on people. I think the concern that's been raised a few times here is that occasionally that well-intentioned soft approach may have gone too far where things were being treated as if they were law, but in fact were just guidance. So overall, I actually think Ireland has responded reasonably well, and many commentators who've commented for the, the Observatory in Trinity have agreed. Uh, but there's always scope for improvement, and there's always scope, I think, for additional oversight. And we have to be wary of how these powers are used in the in the medium term if these extraordinary measures are, are to remain in force. Thank you, Dr. Kenyon. In the short time I have left, do any of the other witnesses wish to respond to that question? Um, yes, yes. If I could just, uh, if I just respond to that, just as we said in our in our uh, written submission, we did think that the legislative framework, namely uh, primary legislation followed by a regulation pursuant to that, uh, that primary legislation, that seemed to be effective in bringing in emergency and important measures that were communicated then to people. That's the question of proportionality. That really is ultimately a matter uh, for the courts to determine in any, in any particular challenge and would depend very much on the circumstances in which any such challenge was made as to whether or not the regulations and the measures brought in were proportional. And in that respect, again, coming back to our initial point, that whilst an awful lot of areas of public life were effectively not working or not able to work during the period of the pandemic, the courts were operational and did work. And that was very important in the sense that any issue about the proportionality, any challenge to the legislation, any challenge to the regulations that could be put before the courts, as did happen in the one high court challenge there has been to date. So it was important in terms of Ireland's response to, uh, to, the, to the legislative framework and, and within that legislative framework that the courts were available and they continue to be available and that was very important that they can, and I think in that sense uh, the, the Irish response was very effective. Thank you very much. Sad that um, I agree with my colleagues that um, in terms of the Irish response, I think we did a reasonably good job uh, given the unprecedented uh, nature and scale of the crisis and the speed at which it, 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 it evolved. Thank you very much. Chair, I have no further questions. Thank no you. Further questions. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Smith. Uh, Deputy uh, Boyd Barrett. Thanks, and thanks to the contributors. Uh, can I say to the Law Society, I very much welcome the part of your submission which uh, suggests action should be taken to accelerate the end of direct provision and uh, in terms of uh, ensuring you know the resources necessary for social distancing uh, in overcrowded housing conditions. Um, so ju just I just want to say that as a very positive thing. But I, I have two questions really. Um, following everything you've said uh, about confusion over legal requirements as against guidance, about the need for proportionality, if I understand you correctly, for things to be clearly communicated, uh, and uh, so on. I, I mean, do you, you may know there's a motion in the Dáil to deal with Section 31A of the Health Act, which gives sweeping powers to the Minister for Health, and uh, the statutory instrument, which 
relate to things like uh, gatherings in homes, limiting numbers and gathering in, in homes and various other uh, restrictions. I mean, do you think that, that uh, those emergency amendments to the Health Act and the stat that statutory instrument are problematic legally, you know, that they, they sail close to the wind or beyond, uh, if you like, uh, the boundaries which you think need to be observed in terms of uh, uh, legality, constitutionality, or just ensuring that there's trust, uh, public trust, uh, in, uh, in the laws and regulations that are being used to deal with COVID. That's my, my first question. And the other question I just would like sort of clarity on, I mean, you know, I'm very much believe people should adhere to rational uh, public health guidelines. Um, but I also think, and uh, you know, a number of you have made observations about the need for the Dáil committees to function, the legal system to function and so on. And the right to protest is, it seems to me, is a very important part of the functioning of our uh, democracy. Now, I think people who recklessly sort of refuse to socially distance on protests, who don't wear masks and so on, I think is utterly reckless, but I also think it would be completely wrong, and I'm not even sure what the legal position at the moment is, uh, to prevent protests where people do socially distance, do wear masks, uh, given the importance of the right to demonstrate and the right to protest uh, in a functioning democracy. So I'd just like to hear your opinions on that, uh, and indeed what is the sort of, you know, what's the constitutional and legal powers uh, uh, now, uh, in terms of, you know, do they have the right to stop protests? Um, I just, yeah, would like your opinion. I mean, for just to give you one example, I won't mention the group involved, but there was one group that was planning a protest soon that were told by the guards that if they organised a protest, they'd all be arrested. Now, this was despite the fact that they made very clear that they were going to socially distance, they were going to mask, they were going to control numbers uh, and regulate the protest, but they were just told, no, if you go ahead, we'll arrest you. Um, do they actually have the power to do that? Uh, do you think that's proportionate? Does that sort of relate to any of the concerns you've expressed? That's it. Those are my questions. Deal with part of that, um, if I may. Um, it relate relating to uh, on, on the question of of um, public protest. I mean, public protest is an essential part of democracy, like many of the other things we're we're talking about here as well. Um, and if it is to be restricted, then any restriction on it has to be necessary and proportionate, as would be required by law. Um, whether that is the case or not in any particular instance then becomes a matter that ultimately on evidence a court might have to decide as to whether um, a restriction on public protest, something which is essential to democracy, was, was necessary and proportionate. So I'm not really expressing a view on that. On the question, I suppose, other than talking in principle terms, on the, on, we, in part of the society's submission, we do have under a heading discussion on house parties, which I think is something else I think the, uh, the deputy was, was referring to. Um, and the proposal to empower Garthi to enter private dwellings with a view to enforcement um, of COVID-19 regulations is of some concern to the society, we say, in our submission. Um, criminal statutes that provide for powers of entry by the Garthi into private dwellings generally have safeguards that require certain preconditions to be met. 
And again, we say the Oireachtas has generally provided the powers of entry into private dwellings are reserved for the investigation of serious offences. For example, an arrestable offence, whereby the penalty for such offences has a where the penalty for such an offence is a penalty of five years imprisonment or more. So, again, without expressing any definitive view on it, uh, I conclude with with a sentence from our submission, which says the society cautions against introducing powers which are normally reserved for the investigation of serious criminal offences for the purpose of enforcing what are, in effect, health regulations. So. Just very briefly then, in that regard, is SI uh, number 326 of 2020 that deals with things like the numbers gathering in private dwellings, do you think there's at least a question mark over you know, the, the legality or the constitutionality of these kind of provisions? Well, just on that quickly, the clearly the Constitution provides protections uh, for the dwelling house of uh, dwelling home houses of citizens, um, and it's very restricted the circumstances in which um, that can be violated. Uh, again, it becomes a question for argument as to whether the um, the power being introduced and the circumstances for which it's being introduced whether it is a necessary and proportionate response. Um, and but as I, I really just pointed to something which was in the society's uh, submission, which uh, all deputies received, which is simply no more than really an expression of concern, uh, not a definitive expression one way or another that we're for or against it. We're just saying there are these legal concerns in relation to it. And, and sorry, deputy. Sorry. Uh, I'm, out. Time, I'm out of time, am I? You are, yeah. I, I'll try to bring you in at the end. Okay. Thanks very much for your Thank answers. you, Mr. Murphy. Thank you very much. Uh, the next speaker is Deputy Shannon. Uh, thank you, Chairman, and thank you to our guests today. Uh, could I just go back to that point uh, that was just raised a few moments ago uh, with respect to the powers of Gardaí? Uh, I think in your submissions, uh, th the main tenet of them that comes across is that we have robust constitutional oversight, uh, albeit some of the recommendations were probably not well understood uh, early on. But with respect to um, the issue of house parties, it occupied a good bit of time, I think, in national media yesterday, uh, particularly in, in college um, towns and cities where obviously we can't blame kids for congregating and all of that. But, but if you accept uh, the rationale that you know you have allowed emergency powers to be implemented on public health grounds, what, what is your reticence then in t terms of having a, a legal requirement given to the guards to be able to go in and to disrupt these parties and obviously try and uh, stop the transmission of disease? briefly speak to, to that maybe answer the, the, the previous query as well. But I think with, with something like this, and it's important, again, to say the most recent regulations do not provide for a power of entry. Um, they, they, make, uh, they make it clear that it is under the regulations not lawful to organise a, a gathering, but there is no criminal sanction attached. It's not a penal provision described at some quarters as a civil offence, but it's been pointed out that that's not something really known to our law. Um, but, but in terms of considering that and whether or not it's allowed, I think as the, the Law Society has said, there is very serious concerns in terms of the constitutional protection of the dwelling. But as we've talked about a lot proportionality today, the key thing about proportionality is that context is key. And so if a very, very severe public health need could be shown, something might be proportionate when it might not be if that evidence cannot be presented. So that's why it's very difficult to speak in very general terms about 
about this. It really depends on the evidence that could be presented for such an extraordinary power being necessary. And I think what we can say is there is certainly a credible constitutional objection to such a power of entry. Not that it is certainly or definitely unconstitutional. And I think it's important to say that it is for these houses in, in, in debate to work out whether or not they believe that that evidence and, and that, that threat is sufficient if that comes forward as a proposal. But I think this also goes to, to the fact that we've been saying repeatedly uh, a need for oversight of regulations because perhaps it is essential that um, uh, the primary legislation allows for some very broad regulations which could even include uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, 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 making a, a civil offence of this establishment of dwellings. But we would need primary legislation to create a search power and then there would be Oireachtas oversight. But we need that Oireachtas oversight of these regulations as well because they're very, very significant. And some of the most significant rulemaking in this pandemic has been done by regulation. So it's very important that that oversight is there. Thank you. Uh, just in relation, I agree with Deputy Barrett in terms of, of uh, the comments about direct provision centres, but can I ask, uh, you know, has, be it the Law Society or, or any of the other legal people that are represented in committee today, uh, have you looked at trying to short-circuit the asylum uh, process? Because one of the problems that we have is, as you know, we have a number of people in the country, long stay, trying to have their status recognised, and that is leading to uh, the increase in numbers. Obviously, the increase in applications and the increase in numbers. Everyone's pointing the finger over at me here. Unfortunately, that, that's not a matter for the Bar Council um, or for the Bar of Ireland. As I've said, it's up to the executive, it's up to the legislature, and then you have the final check, which is by the courts. So in respect of that system and how it operates, if there is a uh, fundamental breach of a person's rights in respect of the operation of that system, then either the legislature during the course of its debates in the two houses here has the, the, the power and the authority and the ability to address it, and then the outside check is through the courts, through a challenge, a judicial review of that. Um, but from the, the, the Council of the Bar of Ireland, we, we don't have any input into that. Um, so perhaps that the Law Society or Trinity who have been carrying out the, the overview may have an observation in respect thereof. To, to say that it obviously is within the, the, the power of, of the Oireachtas in legislating on a matter like asylum, whether or not it, the Houses believe there is an extraordinary need to uh, uh, exploit applications, set up a, a different system, uh, or, or even sort of uh, uh, create some sort of bl blanket rule granting people uh, a particular leave to remain or other status because of the, the, the exigencies of the pandemic. Those are powers that the Houses have, and I think something that is worth considering in light of the, the, the problems that have emerged, but it would be entirely for the Oireachtas. To, to determine if that's something that's worthwhile. Okay, thanks, Chair. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kenny. Uh, the next speaker is um, Deputy Durkin, I think. Are you you're going next to Deputy no, Carroll? Can I give the whole, I mean, Five minutes? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Okay, thanks. thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I welcome our witnesses. Uh, and and um, uh, just a, a couple of questions. <clears throat> uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a non-legal person, so I speak as, 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 as a, a, a lay person. Uh, to what extent do you believe uh, people use their own common sense in determining what's best at a particular time in the context of the COVID uh, 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 pandemic? Uh, is it reliable? Uh, I would suggest that it isn't. Uh, that recent events have shown, and events over the past month have shown that uh, people do not necessarily uh, decide 
uh, what, in favour of what might be in their own interest and the interests of those around them. So that's, that's one question. The other is in, in relation to, <coughs> and the point has just been raised in relation to the direct provision. Having dealt with a lot of cases, uh, people in direct provision over the years, over a long number of years, um, this issue has come to the fore in, more re in more, most recent times. My question really is this. The legislators may well decide uh, on alternative ways and means of, of uh, housing people, but the, that takes time. And in the interim, uh, wh what should legislators do? For example, if people are, are living in direct provision, in close proximity, how can we change that? For instance, we have, uh, in, in my own constituency, almost 8,000 families on the local authority waiting list, and, and at least double that number are waiting uh, private, private housing of one, of one uh, kind or another. And in those two circumstances, do you have any advice to give as to what the legislators might find it possible to do to accommodate, to accommodate both situations? take answers from anybody. Well, do you want to specify who you'd like to answer first then? I, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, I think so. I'm, like, I'm only going to use five minutes anyway, so. Let's... Yeah, but who, who do you want to answer the question? Oh, this... I, I, whoever's, whosoever wishes to respond, I'm willing to entertain all and sundry. Thank you, Deputy Durkin. I, I, I'll jump in here. I might as well. Um, and again, it, it'll sound as if I'm going over old ground from the perspective of the, the Bar of Ireland. But regarding the direct provision, again, it's a system that has been brought into effect under statutory provisions and under primary legislation acts and statutes. And the checks and bounds on that are via local government acts, for example. It's also through the, the legislature here in both the, the Dáil and the Shannad. And our role would only come into being if an individual brings a constitutional challenge. We would bring a constitutional challenge, if so briefed, so to do. But in respect of the, the how a system should be put into play, or what should be involved in the statute, the primary act itself, or what should be involved in the statutory instrument, that's actually not for the Bar of Ireland to, to dictate or anything of that nature. It, it's, a, it's an oroctus issue and possibly an issue as well at local government level. But I'll, I'll defer to my, my colleagues here. Thank you very much, um, Deputy. Just to, to address your, your first point briefly, I think that as you talk about the relying on people's common sense, and I think that's what we try to do when we try and issue public health advice. We try and persuade people to make uh, the right choices. But I also think the reason that we have a, sort of a system of laws is that we don't think that people's common sense is always reliable, and sometimes we replace it with a, with a diktat about what has to be done. And I think that since that is why we have legal regulation, both in the pandemic context and generally, I think it's very important that we try to use persuasion and advice to guide people's behaviour, but also that we aren't afraid of using the law to try and uh, uh, control that, always with an eye to, to proportionality in respecting uh, uh, human rights and, and constitutional imperatives while we're doing that. Uh, briefly, in terms of direct provision, I think it's, it's very much worthwhile uh, looking into this. I know replacing direct provision has been a matter of uh, significant uh, discussion for some time, and it would seem perhaps like it's worthwhile for this committee to have some direct discussions with stakeholders such as the uh, Irish Refugee Council and the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland in terms of what might be done uh, in the short term to remedy the situation, but unfortunately it's beyond my expertise. Thank you. 
if I could come in just in relation to um, uh, Deputy Durkin and, and talking about common sense, it's an old joke, but it, it, it's still true that the problem with common sense is it isn't all that common. Um, and a lot of people, um, it can only be based, common sense can only be based on information. And it depends on what information people are given so they can make a judgment which they instinctively feel is a common sense judgment. But uh, as, uh, as Mr. Kenny um, uh, correctly says, ultimately, law has to underpin that because common sense is not going to be followed by everyone. And we all, we've all seen the circumstances where common sense is being flouted. And that's where law comes in to ensure that there is some certainty. And on, on the question of um, direct provision, Again, uh, I have to agree with with the others. The the answer, the reason why there was such, I suppose, stunned silence from this room here in relation to your question was because we're not used to being asked that question because it really is a question uh, for legislators. Um, and it is a matter for the people in the Senate chamber, not in this room, as to work out how direct provision can be ended. Although the Law Society, in its submission, uh, as uh, Deputy Boyd Barrett uh, welcomed, uh, we have welcomed the commitment in the Programme for Government uh, to end direct provision. Uh, Mr Chairman, there's an ad on television, uh, not wishing to become part of the advertising uh, campaign, but which says that uh, if we leave children to their devices, they might never leave their devices, which I thought was a very interesting uh, advertisement in any event. But uh, what, what I am suggesting there is that, that and I agree, that leaving to uh, the common sense of people to make up their minds, they generally might make up their minds in favour of what suits their own particular objectives at a particular time. And I think for that reason, it is unreliable. Thank you, Deputy Durkin. Um, I'm going to bring in Deputy Daly and then um, uh, Deputy Carr McNeill. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much um, to the three um, people who gave the submission. And could I address the first question to uh, Ms. McNally and uh, congratulate you first on your recent appointment as the as the chair of the bar? Um, you mentioned uh, in your in your opening statement about that you have concerns in relation to video hearings. Is it your view, and is it the view of the is it the view of the Bar Council that, um, for example, bail hearings and trials, contested trials, and even sentence hearings are not suited for, to, uh, to video hearings? Uh, that's the first question that I have for you. And in relation to your concerns raised in relation to the trials by juries, um, you're probably aware that uh, in most circuits around the country, uh, for example, in the southwestern circuit, uh, criminal trials have been moved into Limerick, and the forthcoming trials in Ennis and uh, Tralee have been abandoned, uh, so that there's now only, I think, one week of trials. Do you think that this showed a level of inflexibility or on behalf of the court service in, in, in circumstances where the district courts have all reopened in their original courthouses, but that they have not been flexible enough to hire other halls, sports halls, so that juries can be sworn in in these locations. I, I did notice that you said that uh, justice uh, has to be seen to be done, and I, 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 I presume that you 
you would maintain that that has to be done in its local county, if at all possible. Um, you, you also mentioned uh, judicial reviews. And uh, I know myself that there was a, a, a number of judicial reviews taken uh, at the height of the lockdown. Uh, one of them related to somebody who had been arrested uh, uh, for Section 6 of the Public Order Act, um, which is not defined as a serious offence under the, uh, the, the 1997 Bail Act, but uh, that person was remanded in custody. So are, are, are you, on the basis that it was a serious offence, are you aware, number one, of many judicial reviews taken uh, in the High Court to challenge, uh, let's say, crim small criminal cases, minor cases, uh, where custody was as a result, and are you also aware uh, that uh, perhaps, the, the, anecdotally, that there was um, a story going around that the, the judiciary were told to take a zero-tolerance approach to cases? I'm not sure whether you'll follow me down that road or not, but uh, did, did you, anecdotally, did you hear anything uh, like that? Um, well, well, that's uh, they're, they're my questions for you, please. Firstly, I'll try and address the fifth part of your question there about whether I've heard anecdotally of any interference with the independence of the judiciary. No, no. And I have to say categorically, no. no it, it, I've, heard neither I've heard neither anecdotally yeah. or in any other. Not, not from outside the judiciary, but from, from within, was there any? Cer certainly not. Okay. I've heard nothing of that nature. And I believe firmly in the independence of the judiciary, because without that, we will not have rule of law we will not have democracy. It is one of the tenets of our democracy. And in respect of the number of judicial review cases, again, that's more an issue that can be addressed by the court services. And on the subject of the court services, when you mentioned, and I mentioned it myself earlier, uh, about the CCJ, the Central Criminal Courts for the uh, rape trials and murder trials moving out of Dublin and moving to venues such as Kilkenny, over to Castle Bar, etc. We're very aware in the Bar of Ireland of the knock-on effect of that to each county. In the district court, if you have your case and you want to appeal, you appeal to the local county. For example, my own county in Leitrim, the appeals would be to Carrick and Shannon. It's not affected. But if you're in Mayo and you have a case in Castle Bar, your criminal trial is now going to be moved on a circuit perspective down to Galway. Is that appropriate? Does it take into consideration the travel capacity of individuals? Uh, does it take into consideration uh, the traveling of witnesses, etc.? Again, these are, are issues that are, unfortunately, outside of the scope of the Bar of Ireland, but they are factual matters that should be taken into consideration. And perhaps it's another example of where stakeholders or parties involved whether they be human rights organisations, whether they be the Law Society, the Bar of Ireland, whether they be victims' rights associations or the prison guards or the doctors who have to give evidence or the guardee who have to give evidence, perhaps they should all have a say in these decisions that are being made. But as we've all heard, these are decisions that are being made in very uh, constricted times. 
where some of the buildings just aren't suitable, you cannot fit that square peg into a round hole. But, into a round hole. And in order to do that, sorry you have to make the hole bigger. Yeah. And that means expenditure. It means investment. It means hiring of alternative venues so that the cases can proceed. So that's in respect of the circuit court uh, cases. Yes, but could I just, do you sorry. think that the court service could have been more flexible in hiring large sports halls um, halls in hotels, maybe, so that juries could be sworn in there and then that the trials could have continued, for example, in Mayo. That, that's actually what's occurring on the ground as we speak. So, for example, the circuit um, from which uh, I practice, which is the Midland Circuit, that involves the counties of Sligo, uh, Roscommon, Longford, Westmead, Leash and Offaly. So the criminal trials that were in each county, a criminal trial that was in Sligo, a criminal trial that was in Roscommon, they are now being moved to either Mullingar or to Tullamore. But the court facilities themselves aren't big enough to facilitate the jury panel. And by that I mean, if you're going to have a criminal trial, 12 people will get chosen to sit on that jury. But you have to bring more than 12 people, they have to be summoned. So on occasions you have 100 people summoned and if the assessment of the building says you can only have 50 people in that building, then you must hire an alternative venue for those jurors. And we're all cognizant of our own health and our own health issues. And the, the members of the, the, the jury, the potential members of the jury, they're no different to you and I. We're all trying to wear our masks. We're all trying to stay two metres apart. So with all of that in mind, individuals concerned about specific issues about their health, they're all practical issues. But they're practical issues that should be addressed by all of the parties who will be and or may be affected by it. But, is it, but the again, hiring of that, coming, coming again, but we have no control over the hiring of that. Yeah, but do you, do you, is it the view of the Bar Council that wherever possible that the jury trial should continue in their uh, designated venue? That would be our assertion, in that it's very unfair. Supposing you're an accused, and we'll take Castle Bar again, you're an accused in Castle Bar, or you're the victim in Castle Bar, you're the local guards in Castle Bar who have to give evidence, suddenly, from the circuit court, you now all have to appear down in Galway. Is it fair? Is it unfair? That's not for me to determine. But it's a practicality. It's a, it's a practicality of real life in trying to get court cases up and running. And we're all aware of the constraints faced. The constraints in having financial capacity, the restraints in expenditure, all of that. But if we're going to have a successfully operating legal system, which is required to ensure the rule of law, you have to have this expenditure. You have to have this investment. And you should listen, listen to the parties who will and are being affected by it. That's the position. Thank you. I just, I just have one question for um, uh, Dr. Kenny. Um, and that's just, um, you, you mentioned, Dr. Kenny, that uh, the legal requirements uh, which were uh, introduced in March, that the lockdown requirements, are you saying uh, that when you say that they were legally required to stay in their homes, that uh, they are, and you said that they are not or, or never have been uh, legal requirements, uh, are you saying that most or all of the stringent lockdown, such as cocooning, um, were not legal requirements at all. Yes, and to, to clarify the, the reference in our 
evidence um, as to that. So what we meant to say and, and, and what I think our, our written submission hopefully makes clear is that it was advised that those over 70 remain in their home and the exemptions for leaving your home, such as to shop and to take exercise within a certain distance, were essentially said not to apply to those people. They should remain in their home, even in, in circumstances like that, should they wish to leave. And that was never a part of our regulatory regime. That was never anything but public health advice, but both in terms of uh, communications on departmental websites and statements and press conferences, the opposite impression was was given. And I had appeared on the radio and clarified this at one juncture and received multiple emails from people who believed previously that they had been legally required to stay in their home and were asking, was it correct that they could go outside? And again, that I think is an elision of advice versus a legal requirement that we should try to avoid in all circumstances. Okay. Yeah. You maintain that, all, that that was an abuse of state power? That, that, that is, I believe, how I phrased it in my opening statement. If what happened, and I think it was something that happened in that case, is that people were given the impression they were under a legal obligation that did not exist, I think that is uh, something the state should not do. Um, uh, we mentioned in our statement that we are unclear as to whether or not this is something that has been essentially adopted as a, as a deliberate tactic or not. We obviously have no evidence of that either way. What we said is that we were concerned, given its repeated uh, occurrence, that perhaps this is something that is being used as a tool to ensure compliance, and we would be uh, very much of the view that, that should not be done, that there should One be... One last question. You maintain, I think, that the, re the requirement of a constitutional referendum for remote hearings of... Uh, the, the doll uh, that there's no need for uh, a referendum on that point. Yes, we, we've written on this fairly extensively. We, we would say there's at least a, a significant doubt about any legal advice that would say that remote hearings are unconstitutional. There's been um, uh, essentially three arguments made that the constitution requires a, a physical place for the doll to meet, that privilege can't apply to a virtual hearing room, and that present and voting means physically present. And we would say there is no standing interpretation from the, the superior courts of the constitution that says that's necessarily true. And we would argue that it's quite possible to take a purpose of reading of the Constitution, which is in fact quite uh, flexible in terms of the legislature meeting in other places to say that virtual uh, meeting rooms uh, uh, or some sort of hybrid sitting of the House would be entirely acceptable. And we would think that it would be worth the Houses perhaps pursuing that course. And if people wanted to take a constitutional challenge on that basis, uh, th th then that should be done if it would allow the House to resume. Uh, uh, Thank you very much. For oversight. Deputy Carl McNeil, sorry for keeping you waiting. No problem. It's a very interesting point, uh, Dr. Kenny, because of course we, this committee, was faced with that challenge in the first instance about how we would meet and how we would take, you know, privilege, uh, you know, hear witnesses and and afford them privilege, and so on. And of course, the the practical difficulty with what you're saying, while it's interesting and I agree with it, and you know, love to discuss it with you in detail. The practical difficulty is making laws and regulations uh, under that guise at. It particularly now, and to have the certainty that they will have the effect that is intended, in particular at a time of public health measure, would you accept that that's, a, that, that's just a practical difficulty that legislators in the Houses of the Oireachtas have had to face? Absolutely, and I can see entirely why that it, 
given that I believe there was legal advice suggesting that this would be problematic, that it would be seen as a risk that would have been uh, uh, hard to take. Uh, but, for example, if some uh, uh, sitting of the House for vote of the consequence for motion or indeed the passage of an act had been done uh, in that form uh, toward the beginning of the pandemic, that could have, we would have requested the President refer that to the Supreme Court for resolution of any constitutional doubts about it and we would now have a definitive answer and the Houses potentially could be sitting uh, remotely in full and committees could be operating remotely in full. Simply, we think there's too much doubt about that question to simply say it's resolved and it can't be it can't be done. Obviously, it's entirely up to the Houses as to whether or not they wish to pursue that course, but we think it would be worth considering. Yeah, it's certainly worth considering and it's certainly questions that this committee asked and indeed asked a number of times. But at the end of the day, when you're when you're stuck with the legal advice that you have, uh, it seems difficult. It would be nice to be able to pursue these things in a speculative way to try to get better answers. Um, but of course, that's not an option to us uh, at the moment. Um, but I might just go back to my other questions, just in, in relation to, to what Deputy Daly was saying there about the over 70s. Of course, I, like other deputies here and other, and, and other members of the Iraq, this received multiple communications about that and the cocooning in particular for over 70s. And it was clear to me from reading it that it was advisory, that it was a request on the basis of the particular public health effect, impact and the particular risk to individuals over 70 or with long-term illnesses of different kinds, that they were being asked for their own good for their own well-being and that that was the best science and the best advice available um, but that they were in no way required to stay home or that they would be penalised for doing so and I, that is the subject of all of the correspondence that I went back to my constituents with um, but I do appreciate at the time that it was difficult for everybody to see what was, uh, you know, to, first of all, to distinguish between the different categories of, of, of laws, regulations, and as we're talking today about, about guidance, but also that there was so much information and there has been so much information of different kinds and different nuances in the period since the initial lockdown, that to distinguish what was advice and what was rules was difficult. And that is a clear communication challenge. And it remains a communication challenge as we change the guidance necessarily to try to keep the balance of things open as much as possible and yet try to protect people's health and and, 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 and keep the economy going. Could I just ask the Law Society in particular, and, and thank you for coming, Mr Murphy and Ms O'Boyle, um, just in, in your own submission here in the, on the first page, you note that while many aspects of the response were successful, um, there was a need for clearer communication as to precisely which restrictions. Could you just give me a couple of examples of the types of things you're referring to there, please? I think we've had the over 70s one already, but if there's anything else. The over 70s one was the first I was going to go with, um, but it, I really have to um, uh, look back over it. I think there was, it's more of the nature of a general statement that at times um, there was a, um, um, because, of the, because of the profusion of announcements that were being made um, uh, at, at a time of crisis, and we have to bear in mind that this is also a period when people's are maybe are their antennae are overextended in terms of the amount of information they're getting and the uh, slightly excitable nature of, of of the audience that are that are listening to things. Um, it is, it, I think we're making largely a, a, a statement of principle that what's law and what isn't law um, is needs to be distinguished. Uh, it's a communications challenge. Um, it, is, uh, it is not, as I one, one of the points I was making earlier, we have been supportive of, and you'll see it's thematic in, in, in our submission, that we think the state did a good job uh, yeah. at that time. 
Uh, oh, it's not. It's, it's, it is a communications challenge and it's an ongoing communications challenge. And even in this committee, we saw evidence when we had the behavioural scientists and other public health experts here. And one of the scientific experts was questioning the role of the nine euro meal. And as, as lots of people have, have, have asked the common sense in relation to that and how the nine euro protects you. But the behavioural scientist from a different university responded by saying that when somebody was engaged in, in eating a meal in that way, that their behaviour changed, that they were less likely to interact and so on and so on. So the nuance of all of the different communications is easy to, to miss at every level uh, from certainly in this house certainly um, among scientists and, and, and at every level but I, you know you're not saying in any way that I, I know deputy uh, that Dr Kenny made the, used the word possibly deliberate but the law society isn't suggesting that it was a, a deliberate uh, strategy on the part of the government. I, I hope I made clear in a comment I made earlier yes, that I, I thought it was an unfortunate um, headline of an Irish Times article that suggested that was a law society view. That's not a law society view, we are not suggesting, we have no evidence to support a suggestion that this was deliberate. I think it was the fog of war, and I think it was just something that was inherent in the time. But there was a time when certainly lawyers were asking me, um, who might be more easily able to distinguish law from guidance, whether something was a law, a regulation, guidelines, or just the opinion of a speaker um, in government. Um, and uh, it, it really is, we're not being retrospectively critical of what happened, we're saying there may be lessons to learn for any future circumstances similar to these, hopefully we'll never have to face them. It was uh, a, a, a circumstances that were un, un, unprecedented in, in the history of the state and, 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 and so on. And so we are saying that um, for the future, greater emphasis in communication should be placed on distinguishing what's law with sanction attached to it for breach and what isn't? What's guidance? I mean, I totally agree. And I mean, we, we have all learned an awful lot about the way in which this is communicated. And every time we get an answer and an explanation about the balance of choices that have to be made in terms of reducing contacts generally in the community, uh, we all learn more about it. And I think people deserve the respect of knowing the reason for different things. But as you say, there is so much information. Um, Ms. McNally, can I just uh, congratulate you on your recent appointment as chair of the Bar Council? Could I think you're a bit over time. If Am it's I a already? short question, fine. No, it's, no it's a longer one, I'll bring you in around. at the end. No problem. Yeah, thanks. Um, th there are a number of people I said I'd bring in. Look, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask myself uh, just before I bring in people for the second time. Um, maybe the over 70s thing. I mean, I distinctly remember hearing um, people, RTE, which is a state broadcaster after all, broadcasting ads saying, you may leave your home. Now, if you're telling somebody, and this was after... The, the first round of things. If you're telling somebody you may leave your home, well, the clear implication was up to now you may, you could not. But anyway, look, it's a matter for interpretation. But I, I met many people who were over 70 who thought that they were precluded from leaving their home and they thought it wasn't just guidance. They, they thought it, they were precluded. That said, maybe they had a duty to inform themselves better and seek the regulations out on, on the internet and stuff. I'm just suggesting that it, I, I don't... There was a difference of opinion. You, I agree. Some people felt that they, yeah, it wasn't Yeah, that it was required. a should, not, not you must, but that it's a should, that well, you should do that. there were people who thought that they must. I agree. And so well, I'm just saying that I took the opportunity to correct that and say, no, it's not That's a must, today. it's a should. Thanks. Yeah. No, thanks. Anyway, look, to get on to the, the questions, I didn't mean to digress. And, 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 uh, and thanks for um, um, responding, uh, Deputy Carroll. Um, there's two specific questions I want to ask. One is... An areas affected order was provided for in the initial amending legislation um, and it enabled the minister, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, to make an order declaring an area to be an affected area 
if um, an area or region of the state to be an affected area, if there was known to be or thought to be sustained human transmission of COVID-19 in that area. On the 7th of April, the minister made a regulation declaring the whole country, sorry, that's the amendment that was made to the legislation. There was a subsequent section saying that for the purposes of the subsequent section, not the overall act, but the subsequent section, a minister could declare all or part of the state to be an affected area. This wasn't for COVID, it was for other um, uh, notifiable diseases. Um, so the minister made an order saying that the whole area, that the, the state being all areas and regions thereof is an affected area. And on that basis may introduce various regulations uh, uh, restricting various activities. I suppose my question is firstly, do you think that there's an issue with declaring the entire state to be an affected area if there's no express provision for that in the section? And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, um, is there a duty to review that? Because while on the day the minister made his order, the 7th of April, it may well have been thought that there was sustained human transmission in every area of the state. But clearly, um, although I asked Dr. Glenn, he, he didn't really answer, but clearly in the middle of May, there were counties where there had been no uh, detection of COVID for a month. Um, so is there a duty to review that going forward? Or could you say that the whole country is an affected area for forever, almost. Uh, maybe Dr. Kenny, and, and if, if, if the witnesses from either the Law Society or the Bar Council wish to come in, I'd be happy to hear their views. But Dr. Kenny, I'd address that question too. Sure. Um, to, to, so to take the, the, the two parts of the question, I suppose, uh, my reading of the section is that it, I think, is acceptable for the, the minister to declare the whole country to be an affected area or to, to essentially uh, apply measures nationally if, in the judgment of the, the, the minister, that is, that is what's necessary. Um, certainly, I think that there is... Uh, we've spoken again a lot today about proportionality and proportionality being based on circumstance. It might be that there is at a particular time uh, a proportionate measure taken to apply certain measures to the entire country. And at a later time, perhaps just because of the way that the spread of the disease has developed in practice or because of increased understanding about the risks of spread, uh, between different areas, that that no longer becomes appropriate and that the measures really should be more tailored and more localised. And obviously that's what we've uh, moved toward in the, in the more recent stages of the pandemic. And I think that this is why it's really important that regulations uh, made under the legislation and indeed the legislation itself is time limited uh, and quite strictly time limited to the limits that, that may be as, as short as possible to require those sorts of reviews. That if you are going to continue, for example, to have measures apply nationally, that you have to review at a regular interval whether or not national measures are really appropriate or whether or not more specific and localised measures are necessary. That is how I think it is best addressed, is that uh, basically any measure taken, the sort of extraordinary measure for the pandemic, needs to be time limited and reviewed both by the executive and the legislature at some fairly proximate juncture to make sure that the decisions that we made at the time uh, remain proportionate. Given Thank you, Dr. Kenny. Just to interrupt you, so Section 5 of the Act basically says that any um, regulation made may be annulled by the Dáil, I think, within 21 sitting days, I think. Well, it says days, that's been interpreted to mean sitting days. So. But you think that there should be a, a, maybe something if the Act is 
is to be rolled over, you would be recommending some type of regular review of regulations made that they would come before the Dáil on a more regular basis, not merely that the Dáil may and all within a certain period of time, but if it doesn't, it stays there. You're yeah, sort of yes, precisely. I'd be recommending to you. Two, two different, uh, I suppose, approaches. One, and this has, again, become better with recent regulations, is that the time that they should they should apply for should be more limited. The face mask regulations, for example, the original set for public transport run from July to October. I think a shorter period before the regulations expire or need to be renewed would be better. But also I've suggested an active requirement that essentially any regulation should have to be placed and laid before the House to be affirmed within a number of sitting days. Because the reality is that given the demands on, on sort of legislative attention, uh, uh, calling regulations back by form of annulment often doesn't result in uh, uh, hearings and doesn't result in scrutiny. It's an extra demand on the time of the houses. I appreciate it at a time when it's when it's uh, limited, but I think it would uh, be a great benefit to oversight of the regulations that are being made. Thank you. I don't know if if the bar councillor lost sight. He wished to come in on that. If they do, I'm fine. If not, then I'll move on to the next question. No, thank you. Okay. Um, the next question is. Um, I've been somewhat confused by the most recent regulations that came in, you know, the one that introduced um, six people, three households and all of that, as to the extent, if any, to which it applied to religious worship and religious um, ceremonies, be it baptisms, communions, confirmations, mass, funerals, etc. I suppose, given that funerals are explicitly mentioned or were mentioned in previous regulations, then you'd have to assume that it is in, indeed hoped to bring in um, worship and religious worship, as funerals are a can be a type of religious worship. They, of course, aren't always. Um, the Constitution, the Irish Constitution, provides and guarantees freedom of worship to everybody, subject to limitations on uh, public health, uh, public sorry public order and morality now public order obviously has a wide meaning but it would seem to me from the, the european convention on human rights i think it's article 9 um, provides that freedom of religion can be limited uh, based on public order public morality or public health but it does appear to me that the irish constitution at least doesn't explicitly provide for freedom of worship to be limited on the basis of public health. In those circumstances, would it, do you think that the regulations applied to limiting what churches could do in acts of public worship now as opposed to some of their other activities? Um, and if so, was that lawful? And again, I suppose I'd primarily direct the question to um, Dr. Kenny, but if either of the, um, the, the witnesses from either the Law Society or the Bar Council wish to come in on that, I'd um, appreciate, uh, I'd welcome your views. Thank you. Now, this is where I wish my, my colleague, Professor Oren Doyle was with me, because he has written substantially on, on the, the, the question of the, the, the toing and froing of restrictions on uh, religious services, which were strict at one point and then relaxed almost entirely. And uh, I haven't investigated the most current set of regulations for what they actually do in respect of religious services. What I would say, that if that understanding is correct and they are restricted, there is certainly uh, an open constitutional question uh, as to the validity of those restrictions, given that there is obviously a free practice right in the Irish Constitution. At the same time, public order in the Irish Constitution as a limitation on rights is fairly broadly defined and I would suspect that it would be interpreted as including um, uh, control of, of public health rather than public order in the strict sense of a sort of a, a, a 
the streets of ours public. So I, I would think there is a good case for public order uh, allowing a, a, a restriction in that case. But again, it would be subject to a proportionality test in the courts if it were challenged. Okay. Um, that's my questions. I did say I'd bring in um, Deputy Mike Barrett, Deputy Burke, and Deputy Carl McNeil again. So, um, uh, Deputy Daly, are you coming in as well? Uh, yeah, you're welcome to, of course. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but I'd ask everybody to be brief. Yeah. Uh, my main question, just is to go back to the issue of the right to protest, but I did want to just say in passing that uh, we should be careful about the use of the term common sense. Uh, the great uh, Italian Marxist intellectual Antonio Gramsci pointed out there's a big difference between good sense and common sense. Uh, it was common sense that the world was flat once, uh, but actually the good sense said uh, it was round. And uh, we should be very cautious, I think, because a lot of common sense uh, uh, truths turn out to be not very good sense when you look beneath the surface or apply scientific or intellectual rigour. Uh, and I would say, just briefly in passing also, that while any institution, judiciary or otherwise, might strive for independence to simply assert uh, as uh, its independence, I think, is not actually helping uphold its credibility uh, because, of course, any intellectual examination of that uh, assertion would say no human being is fully independent or, uh, you know, insulated from uh, social, economic or other uh, influences, I would just say that. Uh, but my main question is um, it, it, just to clarify uh, what I heard from David Kenny, maybe in the Law Society or anybody else who wants to com comment about it. It, it do legally do the government have the right to prevent protests at the moment? Um, now, I stress, I think any protest that happens should be socially distanced. Uh, people should wear masks. But I, I just want to, first of all, and to clarify, as well as the legal position on that, given the constitutional freedom to, for assembly and so on, what is the view of... Uh, the contributors, about, given that you say it's very important the Dáil and its committee's function is very important, the judiciary functions in this situation, how important do you think it is that the right to freedom of assembly to protest and so on is uh, to be protected, albeit with social distancing guidelines uh, adhered to, in the context, in this context? Can we move to the answer? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, Thank you, Deputy. Uh, so I would say that, yes, there is, a, I think, uh, it is possible for the government to regulate protest under the powers currently given to the government under the Acts. There's then a question of whether or not that raises a rights or constitutional concern because there is clearly uh, uh, speech and assembly concerns with the restriction of protest. And in terms of what my own view would be, I think that uh, it, it would be desirable if the regulations that were being made specifically addressed if protests were possible and in what circumstances perhaps making very clear what guidelines needed to be followed and then making any protests outside of that uh, uh, something that the, that the regulations prohibited if that was thought, if it was thought necessary to introduce prohibitions. I would note that this is one of those areas where it's problematic that the regulations, you know, perhaps, you know, ca can be made and there may be an omission of something like this uh, and the House doesn't necessarily get input into that. And it could be that in future legislation or amending legislation, um, some uh, 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 reconciliation of a right to protest with future regulations that might be made could be put in primary legislation as something that the Minister had to consider or had to bear in mind in introducing new restrictions. 
Thank you, Mr. Kenny. Thank you, uh, Deputy Burke. Um, thank you very much. I just want to come back in on an issue which arose in the last few weeks, and that's in relation to, uh, and in particular, I'm referring to the new in, in New Zealand, where there's 48 hours notice given of um, change in regulation. Um, whereas in Ireland, it was we had regulations brought in in relation to uh, gatherings, and we had a situation where, say, for instance, the Hotel Federation wrote to the Department of Tourism, the Department of Tourism wrote back saying they had no correspondence from the Department of Health. The Hotel Federation then notified a hotel that they should stick to what was the uh, procedure in place up to this, and the hotel uh, followed through on that. And the, the difficulty now that arises, because it was clear that there was a breach because the regulations were, say, made on a, a Tuesday night, the hotel event was on the Wednesday night, uh, and yet there was an exchange of correspondence where one government department advised a national body, and it could happen, say, for instance, with a farming organisation, where they could write to the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Agriculture said they have no, uh, they have no correspondence from the Department of Health. Where that, does that then leave representative bodies in dealing with government departments um, when they get replies like that, and does it, does it not leave those representative bodies wide open uh, for themselves to be brought into any court proceedings that may arise as a result of the advice that they gave? And I'm just wondering, would... Um, would um, I'll jump in here very shortly. Even though the Bar of Ireland doesn't really have any um, submission in respect of this matter from the, the Bar's perspective, but in respect of all legislation, both primary and secondary, there should be transparency and there should be clarity. But as to whether or not there has been a lacuna or a falling down in respect of that, that's a matter for other bodies to address. But as I say, there should be transparency and clarity. Dr. Kinney, maybe? Yeah, if I could just briefly speak to that, there, there is sort of some protection in terms of when regulations aren't yet formally notified in the Irish Ifigule, the um, Statutory Instruments Act of 1947 will prevent uh, prosecution on foot of anything contained in that regulation. So there is formally a, a legal protection for that situation. At the same time, I think the point that's being made is, is an extremely good one, which is that leaves people in an incredibly difficult situation in terms of what to advise members of their body or, or just people that, they are, that, are, that are coming to them seeking advice. So I think it is, is a matter that, that needs to be that needs to be dealt with and publication of regulations could be significantly improved. But would there not also be a responsibility over in the government department to which they wrote to, which was the Hotels Federation wrote to the, um, the, the, the tourism department, would there not have been uh, an obligation in that tourism department if they didn't have the information to advise the Hotel Federation you should correspond directly with the Department of Health? Um, rather than, I think it was a Friday, the regulation was made on Tuesday evening, it was Friday before the Department of Tourism came back to the Hotel Federation telling them of what the new regulation was. So I'm just wondering, you know, there was a gap there of 72 hours. Uh, and as a result, now we might very well have a situation where a hotel is left in a very wide open situation because of the advice they, they got from, um, from its representative body. Just come here. Just come in as a comment. There is, of course, 
the, the principle and the New Zealand principle that regulations are clear and the text is settled and promulgated 10 days in advance of them coming into effect is, is, uh, is a wonderful proposition. Um, but there's a, the risk of the best being the enemy of the good here. This is a fast moving and fast evolving situation. So I have some sympathy for government that have to act on evidence and make decisions relatively quickly and announce them uh, quickly. And in terms of the, I'm sure it, uh, it, Deputy Burke seems to have a particular instance in mind here in this example in terms of what he's, uh, what he's discussing. Um, I suppose there is, um, uh, particularly if uh, a, uh, an entity has a concern as to whether it's going to be compliant or not, um, that it of course, we'll look to its representative body, but it may also have a, an obligation to look to the actual law and to look to um, public announcements about the law. But it is a, uh, it is difficult um, to keep up, frankly, with the number of changes that are taking place. And also, and this goes to our, our, our thematic um, uh, submission in relation to legal certainty, being able to distinguish what's law, what's guidance, and what's just somebody's opinion. Um, but in terms of... Uh, the, the uh, traditional view that the law takes is that ignorance of the law is no defence. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Deputy, Deputy Carolyn. Just on that point, you know, obviously we've been going through all of the different changes and nuances here in this this committee, and the three-week period is is important because you know uh, it takes two weeks potentially for symptoms to show. You know, as, as something as as the economy opens up and people behave differently, it takes that long just to get the evidence, and then you have a very short window for making decisions, uh, putting them into whatever form is 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 appropriate, and managing to communicate them before they take effect again. So it is a difficult practical problem because the is always to try and keep people as safe as possible and the society as open as possible. So it, so it is difficult. The question that I had wanted to ask was just about the court processes um, from the perspective of the Law Society and the Bar Council. And again, I was congratulating Maureen McNally on her election as a Bar Council Chair, the second since 1979. But of course, Michelle O'Boyle, we've had two women appointed. I'm sorry? You said the second. Excuse me, the second, second woman, woman appointed since 1979. I should say it slowly because it's so important, you're right. Um, but of course, uh, the Law Society having had many more women, but still the election of Michelle O'Boyle is, is, is excellent. So, But just, uh, just on, the, on the substantive point, I note that a lot of the attention, particularly in the Bar Council submission, relates to the conduct of criminal proceedings. And of course, they're, they're, they're very important. Um, but one of the things that has been shown to be of particular concern over this period is domestic abuse, family law proceedings and indeed the enforcement of court orders in family law proceedings um, in, in relation to access and custody, which has been particularly difficult over this period. Could you, could you both just perhaps make a comment on your observations about how that's working from the perspective of your members who are practitioners in that area and, and what's been happening for, for, for them and, and for families impacted by, by those different issues? I'll just jump in here quickly on behalf of the Bar of Ireland. I know that the Family Lawyers Association, which is uh, chaired by one of our members, uh, through the various um, submissions made on behalf of family lawyers, which includes both barristers and solicitors, the family courts have been hearing cases, but they've been hearing cases specific to urgent matters, 
obviously you have to you pick and choose which can be heard first. And those that are that are, are of greatest concern, constitutionally, children are protected. So any childcare issues, any issues touching upon children, their health, well-being, which would include financial support, they are all being dealt with uh, as urgent cases. Um, unfortunately a backlog is building up in that area in respect of other matters, as is happening in all other uh, civil walks of, of law and in, as I say, in, in criminal matters. But when it comes to children or people with disabilities and or where there is a specific urgency, such as domestic abuse or where there is violence involved or anything of that nature, the courts are dealing with it and practitioners are dealing with it. And they made submissions at the very commencement of the COVID-19 to ensure that that would happen. And the Law Society? Just from the Law Society perspective, um, I'm, as you know, a practitioner myself, and I do work in, in the area of family law and other areas. And it is certainly the case that from the very outset that uh, family law issues and issues concerning children uh, were considered priority issues. And uh, colleagues worked collaboratively to ensure that those matters were dealt with expeditiously. And equally, uh, the courts and the presidents of the courts uh, worked very hard to ensure that those, that those matters uh, were brought before the courts and addressed. And that uh, orders were enforced. I, I recall that the president of the district court uh, issued, I think, a direction regarding the matter when there was some concern about enforcing orders and whether or not um, parties to proceedings, uh, I suppose, used an opportunity perhaps in not to uh, fully comply with orders where there may have been, you know, an uncertainty around if they could or could not see their children. That was redressed very, very quickly. And I can certainly say that uh, from a practitioner's point of view, that uh, family law matters and matters uh, were considered uh, uh, important and urgent and were treated as such by all of the stakeholders. Thank you. Thanks very much. Just one last point, and I, very briefly. Um, I completely accept uh, what Mr Murphy said about ignorance of the law being no defence, but would you accept the point made by both of our, the speakers in the previous session, uh, Dr Bocchiccio and Lord Sumption, that you can't seek to legally prosecute uh, for breach of a regulation unless and until that regulation has been published and is accessible to those um, whom it is sought to, to, to regulate? Um, again, I didn't hear those, those uh, submissions. I didn't have the benefit of it. Um, but in principle, again, it is consistent with the theme of much of what we've been saying here, um, that um, there's a requirement, a quote from our submission again, it's a requirement under Irish law, EU law and European Convention of Human Rights that there should be certainty as to the nature of obligations placed on individuals by law. Um, and in the absence of such certainty and the absence of the availability of uh, information um, uh, in relation to that law, um, then clearly um, you can see uh, an argument that can be made if the law hasn't been promulgated and been made transparently available for people to get access to. Um, yeah. But uh, um, the principle that ignorance of the law is no defence is still a long established um, mm. principle of law. But I suppose the law, but what you're saying is the law has to be accessible. It has to be accessible. That's true. You'd be ignorant of it. Ignorance of uh, I inaccessible law. It is one thing. Saying. In a, ignorance of inaccessible law might be a defence. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Murphy, and thank you all very much for coming. Uh, sorry to have come to you slightly later than anticipated. We'll also be starting our next session slightly later than anticipated at three thirty. Um, so, look, I'd like to thank um, uh, Dr. Kenny, uh, Mr. Murphy. Um, 
Miss O'Boyle, uh, Miss McNally and uh, Mr O'Sullivan. And uh, thank you all very much for, for joining us today. And I'd now like to suspend the session until 3.30 when we'll be joined by representatives of the Irish Human Rights Commission, FLAC, the Free Legal Aid Centres and the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Thank you.